This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Afternoon. As I said to the first seminar group this morning, Happy New Year. Those of you who are, how many were, have not been to the first or second seminars? Oh, quite a few. Okay, so, well, welcome to seminar number three, The Cross in Leadership. Um, just a very quick synopsis of seminar one. We looked at why uh, Jesus had to be both fully God and fully human in order to save us, and this is the burden of Hebrews 1 and 2. In Hebrews 3 and 4, we saw that real rest of the Sabbath is a spiritual rest from our works and some of the details that uh, are brought out there in terms of the necessity of faith rather than unbelief expressed in Israel's history in order to enter the promised land and how that applies to us who believe we are on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. And now, um, so chapter 5 then, we're going uh, further in Hebrews and we will deal with leadership issues, which I think um, they, they seem pretty significant to me and I hope you'll find the same way. Let's bow our heads for prayer before we begin. Loving Father, thank you for your word and the light that it brings us as we study deeply, seek to know you better and your will for us. So we ask for your Holy Spirit without whom we can learn nothing but through whom we can learn more than anyone of the great men of the earth can teach us. May you be our teacher and guide in this time together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, before we actually look at Hebrews 5, I think it's helpful for us to review what uh, a few verses in Hebrews chapter 3 because especially since so many of you were not in the second seminar where we covered this, uh, it's the foundation really for all spiritual leadership um, that is Jesus himself. And it speaks about Jesus in Hebrews 3, verses 1 and 2. Um, and so let's just read these verses together. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. It's interesting that Jesus is called not only high priest, but apostle. And we will look at these two offices, apostle and high priest in detail in order to understand better how Jesus exemplifies what it means to be the leader of Israel. So I ask a question, when did Jesus become an apostle? Anyone? When? How? Who? By whom? It's interesting to me that he was not self-appointed. Um, in order to answer this question, we need to look actually somewhat carefully at the Gospels. So we're going to take a little excursion back to the Gospels for a little bit of time here because what Hebrews, what Paul writes in Hebrews here is really predicated upon Jesus' teaching and uh, about himself and uh, also about his uh, setting apart of the apostles. So let's 
first mentioned that the word apostle in Greek is apostolos, and it comes from the verb apostello, which means to send on a mission. And examples of the verb apostello, to be sent on a mission uh, in connection with Jesus in the Gospels, that one is in Matthew 21, 37, the parable of the vineyard. I think we're, we're familiar with that. Uh, you know, the, the Lord sent the, of the vineyard sent servants and, and uh, you know, they uh, beat some and stoned one and another killed another. And, and then finally he said in verse 37, but last of all, he sent unto them his son saying, they will reverence, they will respect my son. So he sent, who is he? Who is the he here that sent the son? The father, yes, of course, the father. And Jesus points this out in detail in John chapter five. The early chapters of John deal with the Judean ministry of Jesus, which we actually don't see much, if any, at all of it in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John, in the early chapters, deals a lot with Jesus' ministry in Judea and Jerusalem. And so he is challenged by the Jewish leaders about his authority to heal and um, cause this man to bear his burden on Sabbath. You know, he was uh, sick for 38 years and healed by the pool of Bethesda. And this ensues into a great controversy of Jesus and his authority. And beginning in verse 31, notice what he says. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There should be a, a divine witness to Jesus as the apostle or, or the one sent from the Father. And so then he goes through the various evidences for him being a genuine apostle or one who is sent. Beginning in verse 32 and carry on through verse 35, he refers to John the Baptist, which everyone, of course, at that time accepted was a, a genuine prophet of the Lord who had a genuine message from heaven. Even Jesus, at the end of his ministry, again, refers to John the Baptist's authority. Was it from heaven or from among men in order to justify his own authority? And they didn't want to answer um, because they knew if they, you know, they, they would be in trouble if they accepted John's witness, but not Jesus, because John witnessed to Jesus. He um, then, in verse 36, Jesus says, But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. Again, the, the verb apostello is used. The Father has sent me. And so the miracles that Jesus worked were an evidence that he was from heaven. You know, uh, later on in John 9, the man born blind, he said, you know, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Uh, wherever was it ever recorded that a man born blind was ever made to see? And so the miracles that Jesus performed were, of course, not for his own benefit or to justify who he was, but because of uh, illustration of the healing power of God to heal us from sin and um, make us whole, completely whole, to restore us into his image. And so uh, as, a, as a subsidiary 
evidence, then he points to the miracles. Um, he says, you know, even if you won't believe what I say, believe the works themselves. If, you know, if nothing else, believe them. In verse 37, then he also refers to the Father himself, which has sent me, again, Avastello hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, even though the voice of the Father spoke. Remember at Jesus' baptism, and John the Baptist refers to this in John chapter 1. Um, and the, the dove from heaven. So there was evidence at Jesus' baptism from the Father directly. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 is another place where that is described. And then the, he saves the most important witness for the last Verses 38 to 40, you have not his word as the Father's word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, him you believe not. Search the scriptures, for in me, uh, sorry, for in them ye think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Verse 41, I receive not honor from men. So here again, he's repeating the same point that uh, he did in verse 31. His honor or his witness is not a self-witness, but uh, divinely witnessed by God, by his word, and by um, his prophets like John the Baptist. Verse 43, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. It's interesting. It's a sad irony that um, the one that was really genuinely sent was not received. And later, and it's true, if you look at Israel's history, later the ones that were not sent, the most prominent of which was Bar Kokhba, who's Name means son of the star, referring probably, you know, there shall be a star that will appear out of Jacob. And so uh, as a messianic figure, he claimed to be a Messiah and wanted to restore the temple, restore Israel as a, a nation above Rome. Of course, it ended even more disastrously than the destruction in AD 70 with this, as it's called, the second revolt. So there were, there were many, many problems by re rejecting the witness of Jesus. And then John 8.42, um, Jesus says to them, if, I, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. So over and over again, Jesus emphasizes that he was sent. We could look at John 17. We won't take the time to read these verses. So just uh, note verse 3 and 8 and verses 17 and 18 point out the same thing, that uh, through the word we know that Jesus is sent from the Father. Even so also then, verse 18, have I sent them into the world, referring to, of course, the 12 apostles. And then also in John 20, 21, he says a very familiar verse, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. 
they would be sent out to the world. What was Jesus' uh, mission? Why was he sent into the world? And uh, so what would you say? What was his mission as the apostle of the Father? Okay, to reveal God and who he is, the Grace truth. And Grace and truth came through Jesus, yes. That's hand here. Sorry? Yes, he can save the lost, exactly, right. Uh, to uh, really save, that the world through him might be saved. And um, then in, that's John 3.17 actually. And then John 3.34 uh, he indicates that to speak the words of God. This was another purpose of his ministry. And Luke 4.18, he was anointed as Messiah by the Spirit of the Lord, sent to preach, to heal, proclaim forgiveness, and to set the captives free. I think it's a familiar passage. Notice verse 21, that again, he points to what we saw in Hebrews in our first seminar, that it's time of fulfillment. Uh, that... He says these words are for fulfilled and uh, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, does not give the spirit by measure to him. And uh, how did Jesus establish leadership in the church? So let's go to uh, a brief overview of how the apostle from the father set up his church and um, we could look at a number of places. First, uh, in John 1, verses 35 to 42. We won't take the time to read this, but it tells the story of the first disciples that came to Jesus. Notice at the bottom, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So, um, and Andrew is mentioned there also, Simon Peter's brother. Um, and then if we would go further, we would see some uh, other uh, of the disciples um, were uh, connected with Jesus at that time, including Nathaniel. Uh, they were, this was early, just after Jesus was baptized, that they came, became acquainted with Jesus and began following him. And more than a year later, as the crowds around Jesus' teaching grew, hanging on every word, he selected from this large group of disciples 12 to be his apostles. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 describe this. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Ellen White in Czar of Ages describes that their office was the most important to which human beings had ever been called and was second only to that of Christ himself. Mark 3.14 says that Jesus appointed 12. The word actually in Greek is poiao. It means he made them into apostles, the 12. It's the same word actually that's used in Hebrews 3. 1 and 2, where it says that Jesus was made uh, apostle and high priest, poiao. The same word is used in both, interestingly, first in Mark here, chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus makes the 12 apostles, 
and where um, Paul in chapter 3 of Hebrews verse 1 and 2 says that he was appointed or made uh, this by uh, him, meaning, of course, the Father. Jesus was appointed or made apostle by the Father. And then uh, Ellen White describes in Desire of Ages, page 296, um, this interesting scene of Jesus ordaining the twelve. When Jesus had ended his instruction to the disciples, he gathered the little band close about him, kneeling in the midst of them, laying his hands upon their heads. He offered a prayer dedicating them to his sacred work. Thus the Lord's disciples were ordained to the gospel ministry. This is uh, Desire of Ages, page 296. Desire of Ages, page 296. Look at Mark 6, 7 also, where it says he called the 12 to himself, began to send them out two by two. So there, again, the verb apostello is used. He sent them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits or demons. It's interesting that it says that um, they were sent out in pairs of two because there are four lists in the New Testament of the 12 apostles. So if we could look briefly at this, these four places where the list appears. First in Matthew 10, 2 to 4. Secondly, in Mark 3, 16 to 19, Luke 6, 13 to 16, and Acts 1, 13. You see that um, in every list, the head group, the head person of each of the, uh, for, of the three divisions, Simon is listed first, then Philip is the fifth name or the, uh, the leader of the second group of or pairs of two, and James, the son of Altheus, appears um, likewise as the head of the third group of pairs. We, we see that Jesus paired his apostles two by two and that they formed these groups. Interestingly, although it's not obvious maybe from a casual reading of these passages, Ellen White tells us in Desire of Ages, page 292, at the head of one of the groups into which the apostles are divided stands the name of Philip. Desire of Ages, 292. And you see, you see that very clearly here, that he was the leader of the second set of pairs of two. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, Jesus has another important principle of leadership that he brings out to them. The context of the passage is actually his foretelling his crucifixion for the third time to the apostles, but it's as if they didn't hear anything that he had said. They are thinking only about their future positions in the coming kingdom. And James and John even asked to sit on his right and left hand um, in the preceding verses. And so Jesus has to clarify for them the vast difference between worldly leadership among unbelievers and spiritual leadership in the church. Notice what he says. And I think I'll take advantage of some water here. Excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. And they're great. <coughs> exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So spiritual leadership requires spiritual attitude, a spiritual attitude of service. And of course, that is given through the Holy Spirit. And after Christ's resurrection, the apostles were to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high, as it says in Luke 24, 49. Of course, Acts 1, verse 4, Jesus said the same, wait until uh, you, are, you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. So in summary, this sort of brief overview of leadership uh, that uh, we see in the Gospels, Jesus was sent by the Father to save us and therefore was made or appointed apostle, just as the twelve were made apostles by Jesus and sent out on a mission, first to Israel as a nation and then to the whole world. The Apostle Paul echoed Jesus' instructions when he describes his own mission of preaching the gospel as to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. So with this background of what apostleship means, we can better understand the description of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5 as an apostle and how the apostles he appointed and sent out were to be leaders like him, to be uh, representatives, his representatives, his ambassadors, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So in order to understand Jesus as our high priest now, as, let's turn back to Hebrews 5. <coughs> Paul describes the qualifications that were necessary for the high priest according to uh, um, the Old Testament and the Levitical high priest had certain qualifications. It wasn't just, you know, the, simply the best man for the job, so to speak, but it's not the kind of qualifications that we would ordinarily uh, expect. Weaknesses qualify and enable the high priest to have compassion. Notice what he says. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. And so... Uh, the priests were to not forget where they came from, that they also were subject to weaknesses as we. The high priest was not to suppose that ordination somehow made him better than mere mortals or holier. Yes, he was holy representative of us to the Father, and yet still human, mediating between God and man as a type of Jesus as our high priest. And God's desire is for us all to be his holy people, to introduce people to Jesus, uh, uh, to the truth of his word, and to represent him as his ambassadors. Um, and also it's pointed out that, um, if we could, before we leave that previous slide, notice that it uh, 
it points out that he himself is also subject to weakness. And um, verse 3, by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so for himself to offer for sins. Verse 3. So the high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, which is a reminder again that um, he is uh, uh, on the same level as all of us who come to God. He's not higher or above them. And then Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. So the first main point, weaknesses qualify and enable the high priest to have compassion. The second point Notice, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, this is what we saw also in connection with Jesus, right? He didn't appoint himself. He didn't bear witness to himself. He said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And so here also, no one takes this honor to himself. He has to be called by God. And this principle, unfortunately, seems to have been forgotten in this whole debate over the ordination of women. We have forgotten our own history as to how our biblical understanding of ordination was established. There was actually in the 1840s as the Adventist church was forming uh, ministers who uh, went out that were not uh, genuine ministers, Adventist ministers. And in fact, Ellen White uh, refers to them in early writings as self-appointed men. This is, um, she had a vision. It's uh, published in early writings, page 98 to 102, called under the chapter heading Gospel Order. And this was actually her second vision. The first one was in 1850. This one was in September, uh, September 30th of 1852. And she says what the cause of disunity at that time was. Notice what she says. Men whose lives are not holy and who are unqualified to teach the present truth enter the field without being acknowledged by the church or the brethren generally. And what is the result? Confusion and disunion. Confusion and disunion. On page 98, she says, these self-sent men were a curse to the cause. A curse to the cause. Um, now, some of you have this handout that I gave out earlier. Um, I'd like to just uh, refer to that at this point. Yeah, that's right. Review and Herald of 1890. And um, I'd like us to look at um, paragraph 13 in the middle, line, the end of line four, the Holy Spirit is wanting in our work. You see that? Uh, Nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by our brethren. We are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courtesy, courteously examine 
controverted points. I feel like fleeing from the place, lest I receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the Bible. Those who cannot impartially examine the evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. What we need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Without this, we are no more fitted to go forth to the world than were the disciples after the crucifixion of their Lord. Jesus knew their destitution and told them to tarry in Jerusalem until they should be endued with power from on high. Every teacher must be a learner that his eyes may be anointed to see the evidences of the advancing truth of God. The beams of the Son of Righteousness must shine into his own heart if he would impart light to others. So we, we need to have that attitude of seeking together the truth, not just forming into our own uh, cliques or camps and launching what might be appeared to be innocent but really unkind missiles at each other. Notice uh, back now to Hebrews chapter 5, verse um, 4, again, that no one takes this on himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So how was Aaron called? Well, let's look at Exodus 28, verse 1. Exodus 28, verse 1. Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So God was uh, through Moses, and Moses was speaking for God here as the prophet or prophecy, uh, appointed Aaron, um, Moses appointed Aaron according to God's word as high priest. So through prophecy, Aaron's right as high priest to be the spiritual leader of Israel was called into question by some. And this is found in number 16. And it might be helpful for us to review this little history. Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram. We just read those names, right? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. The sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So these are all leaders, priests and leaders of the, of the nation. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above this assembly of the Lord? Now, this has the biblical ring of truth, actually, where it said all the congregation is holy. Perhaps they were remembering what was said in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, where God says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, keep my covenant, you shall, covenant, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. And verse 6, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, it sounds like uh, this is right. All the congregation are holy, they said. It seemed biblical. 
Of course, you might remember that Satan himself in the wilderness of temptation with Jesus quoted scripture from Psalm 91. He said, jump off the temple for uh, it is written, he shall, uh, the angels shall bear you up in your hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. Of course, he left out the part where it says also there in the same sentence that the angels would keep him in all his ways. You know, Satan didn't quote the part that was inconvenient. And sometimes uh, we're tempted maybe to only look at part of what scripture says. But it's important to look at all of what scripture says or we could be led astray even by scripture if we're not careful. So Moses prayed and said that God would indicate whom uh, God had chosen in Numbers 16. Uh, and he addressed Korah, a Levite, the ringleader, as the most responsible in verses 8 to 11. The others didn't even pay Moses enough respect, apparently, to come and hear him. They charged him with being a dictator, verse 12 and 13. And we know how that ended up. If you look at the context in verses uh, 31 to 33, that says that the earth uh, swallowed up Korah, Dathan, Abiram with their families and possessions and the 250 men who burned incense and were uh, leaders in the rebellion were consumed by fire. Now, with such miraculous judgment from God against uh, rebellious leaders, you might think that the people would respond with humility and acceptance, that this was clearly God's will, right? But in fact, uh, it is, comes as, to some surprise that the people did not respond that way. If we look at number 1641, it says, on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. You have killed the people. Of the I mean, now, didn't we just read that the earth swallowed them up and the fire came down from God and devoured the people that were offering incense? But somehow the people twisted that against Moses and Aaron as being um, murderers of, the, of God's chosen people, uh, God's chosen leaders. And if God had not intervened with his visible presence in the cloud and glory, uh, and it says in verse 49, by the way, more than 14,700 died in the, more than 14,000 died in the plague that followed this rebellion until finally Aaron, God's chosen high priest, offered incense and made atonement for them. So how was this supposed, how could this be resolved? It seemed like there was no resolution to this problem. Well, the Lord had uh, each of the 12 tribes submit a rod, a staff, um, plus a rod for the tribe of Levi with Aaron's name written on it, and we know, of course, um, as we look at Numbers 17, verses 1 to 10, that uh, in the end, the one that budded and blossomed white and bore ripe almonds was whose rod? Aaron's rod. Um, I guess the other leaders silently took their rods and left. It was the end of discussion. 
I find an interesting um, statement in Kyle and Dale. Just look at the highlighted uh, part. Well, just before it, God could impart new vital powers even to the dry rod. And so Aaron had naturally no preeminence above the heads of the other tribes. But the priesthood was founded not upon natural qualifications and gifts, but upon the power of the Spirit, which God communicates according to the choice of his wisdom and which he had imparted to Aaron through his consecration with holy anointing oil. And um, we might think also of 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 11 and verse 18, where the gifts of the Spirit are given as God wills, as pleases him, not as might please us. This is from a commentary by Kyle and Dalich, who were very um, uh, helpful scholars of the 19th century of the Old Testament. Looking more now at uh, num back to Hebrews 5, um, we can see how these two principles that we've looked at, that no one takes this honor to himself, and that they are, uh, the high priest is, uh, has weaknesses as we all do, is applied in Christ's life. Verse 5, it says, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. Christ did not make himself priest. He received office, the office from the Father. And this is mentioned here then in quoting Psalm 110. He that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Verse 6, and he says also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So these quotations from Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4, prove that Jesus was already called and uh, intended by God as high priest even before the Levitical priesthood came to an end. In other words, Jesus was qualified by Scripture as spoken by God. Just as in the case of Aaron, so also for Jesus. God, through his word, is the one who indicates who is qualified and on what basis. We cannot qualify ourselves any more than we can call ourselves or send ourselves. Even in the case of Jesus becoming high priest, God has specified it already through David that this would happen that Jesus would be called high priest. And then the second qualification, Jesus' weaknesses while on earth qualify him to be high priest. Notice verses 7 to 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the, he offered up prayers and supplications. The Father planned each day for him, as we saw in the previous seminar, seminar number two. And he often saved him from death because his hour had not yet come. There's many verses we could look on about that. Um, he learned obedience. A good leader is also a good follower. He shows leadership by example. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Well, how did Jesus learn obedience? Didn't obedience come naturally to him and easily? As we saw in seminar number one, it not, did not always come easily to him. Matthew 4 verse 3, uh, some, uh, this refers to his being tempted to make stones into bread. Some say, well, we're not tempted. Is anyone here tempted to turn stones into bread? Maybe you've heard that mentioned, but it misses the whole point. The point of the idea is that, as Jesus said, if we have mustard-sized faith, we can move mountains. We can do works that no one else could do. Faith is the point, not uh, working of miracles. And temptation that was presented to Jesus was the desire to exercise a miracle-working faith rather than God's will, which is plain and simple. Sometimes it's too maybe dull, it might seem, for us to simply carry out God's will day by day. But that is, in fact, what qualifies us for greater responsibilities. Jesus learned to obey, it says, also by the things which he suffered. And we can think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, where he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Humility precedes honor. James 4, verse 10, tells us um, that when we submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from us and humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6 says the same. Regarding faithfulness, so Jesus was, his weakness is seen in his offering up prayers and supplications, his learning of obedience, and also his faithfulness. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 2, that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. And of course, that is the Father. Jesus was faithful and obedient to the Father who appointed him, who sent him into the world. He said in John 8, 29, I do always those things that please him. Jesus did not entrust himself uh, to human beings. He entrusted himself always to God. And if God has sent us, he will take care of us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6 says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So the important thing for us is to make sure we follow God's plan for our lives to seek it each day and not our own plan. Then God will work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Turning to some of the uh, references in scripture to leadership gifts, we can find in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 that a bishop or overseer must be blameless, husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Able to teach. Titus 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So it's important to learn uh, teach, uh, how to teach and teach faithfully God's word. 
2 Timothy 2, verse 2, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see the chain of instruction. Paul teaching Timothy, and he is to teach others who in turn will be able to teach still others. This is uh, the faithfulness that is expected of leaders. 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 to 5. Again, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering or patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We can learn much also from a chapter in the book Desire of Ages called He Ordained Twelve. She describes a number of the disciples or apostles of Jesus in that chapter. And I find a lot of instruction in thinking about John the Apostle. She says that John's was the most receptive spirit. He was younger than the others. And with more of the child's confiding trust, he opened his heart to Jesus. Thus he came more into sympathy with Christ and through him the Savior's deepest spiritual teaching was committed to his people. Page 292. He was proud and ambitious to be first in the kingdom of God. Remember we, we saw that already in a previous seminar. But day by day, John, in contrast with his own violent spirit, he beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus, heard his lessons of humility and patience, he opened his heart to the divine influence. In the last seminar, we talked about the importance of our hearts and opening them to God. He opened his heart to the divine influence and became not only a hearer, but a doer of the Savior's words. Self was hid in Christ. He learned to wear the yoke of Christ and to bear his burden. With almost impatient eagerness, Ellen White writes, the angels wait for opportunities also to help us in reaching people for the kingdom. And so as we go out and minister in the neighborhoods tomorrow, keep this promise in mind. Desire of Ages, page 297, with almost impatient eagerness, angels wait for opportunities to help us in reaching people for the kingdom. Uh, unfortunately, our time is done so quickly. Maybe we can continue this, um, and we will have some questions at the end in our next period. But uh, time is over. So let's, um, let's have a pause in this seminar number three. We'll continue and finish and go into seminar number four in our next period. We'll take a five-minute break. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.